appreciate the song and I think it encourages us to be aware of that Christian life is a relationship and don't ever forget that you know it's not to physical surroundings and people and what have you it's the relationship between the individual and his lord and i appreciate the words of that song the nature of our nature romans chapter 8 if you would in verse number 6 paul writes for to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against god for it is not subject to the law of god neither indeed can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. As I'm sure you're already aware and know quite well, in fact, probably by fact and by experience, in the nature of most animals is to bite. That's especially true when uh, threatened or when you get them cornered or when one of them is hurt. I remember uh, years ago and we uh, had our Norwegian elk hound, um, Apache or Cherokee was here, Apache was in Alabama. Cherokee, the big Norwegian we had, weighed about 70 pounds and had the curl tail on his back up over back. I remember him on the back of our house one evening and Stephen came up and stepped on his tail. And though he was the friendliest dog in town, uh, he almost bit Stephen before he realized who he was. I mean, just stepped on his tail and Cherokee swung around and boy, just that quick, uh, he could have been uh, he could have been spam and it could have been over with him but the fact of the matter is it's just the nature of dogs under certain condition to to bite and to express themselves as someone who says uh, you're in my space and you better move back I say that to you because uh, it's interesting that in the last week or so the Institute of Insurance or the in Insurance Institute of America has uh, verified that in this country we have 800,000 dog bites a year that require medical attention, 800,000 of them. And of that 800,000, the Institute said that 400,000 of them are bites to children. What's amazing to me is that the Institute also says that only 10 or 12 of them actually cause death. Hmm, that's amazing. They have 400,000 dog bites and only 12 people die at most. Uh, that's rather miraculous. The fact of the matter also is that the Insurance Institute has declared this an epidemic in America. Now, I know of a lot of things I think are epidemic, but I didn't think of dog bites. But anyway, they say they are, and here's what they've done. They've compiled a list of dogs, which if you have in your home or in your backyard, from now on, you'll begin paying a higher insurance premium. And their ideal is because of the liability of that kind of dog. Now, if your dog's not on the list, no big deal. But if you have a dog and your dog's on that list, you're going to be getting an insurance, insurance premium increase, and it's going to come soon. What's interesting about that is we know that the nature of dogs are a bite. But likewise, and just like dogs, man has a nature about him. He has a, a predisposition, not necessarily to bite. He grows out of that in the nursery. But he does have a predisposition or a nature to sin. 
And the fact of the matter is that he inherited from Adam, his father, the founder of the human race. And Romans chapter 5, we've covered it so many times. I hope by now you've got it memorized in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all they have sinned. I hope you have that down, and I hope you have it in your heart. By the way, we talk about, and just this last week we heard a lot about anthropology. And we heard about it because of the references made to these people who gave all these gifts to human causes. Well, let me say to you that anthropology is the study, the doctrine, the word regarding man. It's, uh, anthropology is a, a, it's a word that comes from two Greek words. Anthropos is the word for man. And logos that is the, the ending of that word is in the Greek is a word that carries with it the idea of doctrine, teaching, the word, all of that comes under the word logos. So anthropology is the word about man. It's the doctrine about man. It's the teaching about man. What's important about that is that what people believe about man and mankind is generally one of the more important things that we have a belief about. That's interesting because the Bible sets up and sets forth two very clear truths about mankind that you need to believe. This ought to be a core belief system for you. First of all, you ought to believe that Jesus Christ, or that man rather, was created by God in the image of God. You need to believe that. You believe the Bible says it, you need to believe it. Man was created in, by, the, by God Almighty, and he was created in the image of God. Second thing you need to understand and believe, the Bible teaches, is that man is a sinner by nature. There are, those are two things that are fundamental to everything else you believe that comes out of the Scriptures. Is man was created by God in the image of God, and secondly, that man is a sinner and he is so by nature. What's interesting about that, what we would expect, and it is found to be true, that the pagans, the godless culture in which you and I live, in and around, they set forth in direct opposition, in direct contradiction of what God's Word says, two statements. First of all, they state that man evolved from an animal kingdom. The Bible does not teach that. That's obvious. And two, they teach that man is basically good. Now, how could you be any more, I guess, contradictory than that against what God has said? What's amazing to me is that some religions got in on it. That is to say that after people began to teach it and talk about it, evidently the founders of various religious groups decided that they might be right. For instance... You should know that the Mormons who work very hard at reaching every home in every city with their doctrine teach very simply regarding man that, quote, man was preexistent and he has an innate goodness about him. That is absolutely not true. The Mormons teach that all mankind came from a pool, a pool in heaven of people. And they were brought to this earth in spirit and in given bodies and they operate as they do. The Bible does not teach that. Bible nowhere teaches that. And secondly, it is not that man is innately good. It is not. He is innately wicked. He is born a sinner and he stays a sinner until he repents of his sin and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. The Christian science people go a little further and are certainly more ridiculous. They declare, and I quote, man is co-eternal with God, bodies are non-existent, and sin is imaginary. Yeah, right. This thing you have here you call a body, doesn't exist. Your clothes are just hanging on a rack, it looks like one. Yeah, give me a break. But obviously, obviously the Bible refutes that. Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, declare that man is created. 
But they declare also that he does not have, he does not have an eternal soul. And he, they say there is no hell to which you go if you die as a sinner. But they do say to inherit their kind of heavenly kingdom, quote, you have to follow Jesus Christ faithfully to the death. Their ideal is a work salvation. If you keep up your end of the bargain, you'll get to heaven. You'll get to the place they call heaven, a heavenly kingdom. You'll get there if you keep up your end, but you've got to keep up your end. So the Mormons, the Christian science people, Jehovah's Witnesses, all emphasize, as it were, in one form or another, the kind of idea that man is, uh, is good, but he needs some help. But he's not totally bad, and therefore they are contradicting what the Bible teaches. And they do believe that man has to have some kind of help on his own, that is, he does something to help God look favorably upon him. Let me remind you of a passage that we read a long time ago, early into the book of Romans. It's found in Titus. It's in chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, listen to these verses. Titus chapter 3 in verse number 8 says simply, or in fact, beginning in verse 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. Now you ought to see verse number three, for we ourselves also were sometimes, Paul writes to Titus and says there was a time, a place, somewhere back in time that we were like this. Verse four, transitional verse, and he says, but, but after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Not friend and king, but Savior. Verse 7, And being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto all men. Paul says to Titus, says, look, understand this. Salvation is a done deal. Having been justified, saved, past tense, already done, already finished, it is good that you keep up good works and do right. But that's not what's going to save you because not by works of righteousness, verse 5 says, which we have done, do we get a relationship with God made right. That's a passage of Scripture that ought to be classic to you, and you ought to keep that before you because when any one of these groups, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or anybody else who comes to your doorstep and gives you a wrong interpretation of what man is like, they most likely will give you a wrong interpretation of what salvation is. What salvation is. When you don't understand what man is, then you won't understand what salvation is. And anybody, any denomination, any church group, any religious group, if they don't get it right about what man is, they will not get it right what God has done for man. And that's how you have all the cults, and that's how you have all the denominations that are off base. I say to you that the Bible is crystal clear, and Paul has set forth very clearly that mankind has a sin nature. Sometimes you hear references made to the original sin. That's the first human sin that Adam sinned. It's the sin of the human race. It's the sin into which every human being is born. And I say we sin because it is the nature of sinners to do so. And here in chapter 8, Paul comes down to this thing to expound and explain to you and me the nature of that nature. 
and I want you to see it. Look, first of all, verse number six. We covered the verse last week, but just to sort of set the stage again. In verse six, he says, for to be carnally minded, that's to be fleshly oriented minded, is, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Flesh-minded people are dead spiritually, Paul is saying, even while they're alive physically. They are walking dead men and women. He also says in that verse that while he tells us spiritual-minded people or spirit-minded people are alive spiritually and have peace of and peace with God even while they live physically. So you can, uh, even in this life, physically alive, you can also be spiritually alive. And that's what Christians are. That's what Christianity is. Then in verse number 7, notice verse 7, he says, because... And that's important. He's going to the first part of verse 6 primarily because he says in verse 6, to be carnally minded is death. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. What he says here, he states the reason that the carnally minded person is dead. And he states it, I believe, in three ways. And I want to point those three ways out to you this morning. First of all, he points it out and he uses the word because. So because they are spiritually minded because or spiritually dead because the carnal mind, that's the flesh-oriented thinking that we have, is enmity against God. The thoughts, the thought patterns, the orientation of a person is against God. That means that every person that you know that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, are enmity against God. It's not that they have enmity again. That's not what the verse says. Carnal mind is enmity against God. It means it has a hostility. It has a hatred. It has a bitterness to God. And therefore, those people are dead to spiritual things. Basically saying that every person who has not believed on Christ as Savior personally, that person may not act it, may not say it, may never mention it. But in point of fact, those folks are hostile to the God of heaven. They are indeed against him. A person who has not believed on Christ as Savior cannot live the Christian life simply because he does not have the nature. He does not have the resources. He does not have the help that he needs and that is necessary to him to carry on a right relationship with God Almighty. That's interesting because that comes in what God provides to the Christian when he saves him. When God saves a man, he places within that person the Lord Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells. And we'll get into that in the latter part, verse 9, 10, and 11 of Romans chapter 8. And that's what gives us the potential, the possibility of living for the Lord. But interestingly enough, believers are admonished very clearly in the Scriptures several things. Listen to this one. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse number 15, it says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's an enmity in there. If a person loves the world, that person is at enmity with God. Verse goes on to say that. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of God or of the Father, but is of the world. And verse 17, the world passeth away, the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That verse of Scripture says the reason that is that lost people love the world because the world helps to satisfy, gratify the lust of their flesh. And I say this to you, this world is a, is a virtual minefield of fleshly, seductive activity. 
The music you listen to can be as seductive as anything you have ever in your life confronted. Seductive. The music is, is that which you hear, the com, com, commercials on television. I, I have unfortunately seen some commercials on television that are as sensual as anything my eyes have ever looked upon. Commercials. And the fact of the matter is that watching all these things and movies included are all directed at your flesh. They're not directed at your spirituality. They're directed at your flesh. Every movie you've ever looked upon was directed at your flesh. Every commercial you ever seen was directed at your flesh. Every song you ever heard was directed at your flesh out there in the world. And the ideal is they know what they're doing. They are working diametrically against what God is doing. God's not interested in your flesh. Oh, He may heal your body so you can keep on glorifying Him, but your flesh is just an envelope that as soon as it gets the letter to its delivery, it's done for. And some of us are closer than others. These tabernacles of flesh will pass away sometime. They're no longer of any need. When we pass out of this life into the next, this envelope will just simply shut off. And we'll put it in a grave, in a casket. And we'll leave it there until the resurrection of the just. The fact of the matter is, the world is zeroing in. By the way, interesting to me that all this last week after the election, there was people in the media saying this. And here was one of the quotes. It says that the movie industry is an enemy of the people in this country that are called Bible moralists. The Hollywood moralists are not interested in their spiritual well-being, but in their fleshly orientations. A guy on the media said that. He said, oh, those church-going moralists... Hollywood is your enemy because there's the folks that got along with all the democratic side of the program and everybody said, no, we don't want that in our homes. We don't like that. I say this to you. You have to understand that you're made up of a, a sinful nature. And when you got saved, that sinful nature didn't go off park itself somewhere in a wilderness. It's still a very much a part of you. And it is capable of being fed by anything you see, anything you hear, any discussion you carry on. If you feed that flesh, if you feed that side of your nature, I can tell you what kind of person you're going to be. You're going to be a fleshly or any kind of guy or lady. And consequently, there are some Christian people in this world who are frustrated as a termite in a yo-yo because they are saved, but they live fleshly. I say this to you because this text of Scripture is so vital to us, probably more now than ever. I believe personally that it's going to take a a more committed Christian to stand under the test and the fire that's coming down the pike. I really, I really believe that our day of challenge is coming as believers to either put up or shut up. As all these politicians who've been elected to these offices, it's now time to put up or shut up. But it's never been truer of the Christian community. And what we don't need is folks sitting on the sidelines who are all caught up in their fleshly orientation when they should be interested in spiritual and eternal matters. I say this to you. The gentleman who passed away last evening, I have been in touch with the lady who gave us that prayer request all along from the day he went in the hospital back on October the 10th until last uh, this morning. She called early and said he had passed away last evening. What's interesting is the last words that man spoke were concerning his well-being. That is, he was rushed to the hospital, taken there by ambulance. His wife called a 911 one evening when he couldn't breathe, and he was obviously seriously ill at that moment. She got him to the hospital, and she got in where she could speak with him after they had prepped him and put him in an emergency ward. She leaned down to him 
And he said just these words, I waited too late. I waited too late. And those were the last words he's ever spoken. He died last evening, having never spoken anymore. You know, that's not only going to be true about that man, about his physical. It's going to be true about a lot of people spiritually. There are going to be people in the city of Franklin that you know and I know who are going to wait just one day too long about coming around to this thing of the reality of the Christian faith. And they're going to have to admit, I waited one day too late. But there are going to be Christians in churches just like ours who know the truth and know that the truth has set us free. But somehow, some way, we have simply not gotten up on, on our, quote, soapbox enough to go out and to share with a dying world the importance of trusting Christ as Savior to counter this fleshly-oriented nature that we have. And our country keeps bending, as it were, toward that nature. Because the world at large, the media included, keeps feeding it. Keeps feeding it. And the more they feed it, the stronger it becomes and the harder it becomes for folks like you who want to rear godly kids, who want to have a holy home, and who wants to be a kind of person and bring honor and glory to our Lord. This world and all of its entities are no friend of yours. They want to satisfy your flesh and they want you to enjoy your flesh. And, oh, just enjoy the journey, they tell you. Well, they are in telling you to enjoy the journey, but they're not going to the end where you're going. That journey leads to hell itself. I remind you of something else after John's statements in 1 John chapter 2. And I think honestly that James gets it with a little more sting. He said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Let me tell you something. If you want to get on the wrong side of God, you just love the world. You say, but I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven when I die. You mean to tell me I could still be a, 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 an enemy of God? In the context of these verses, you could. When you take to this world and you gravitate to this world and you love this world and this world system which is based squarely and solely on the ideal of satisfying and gratifying your flesh, God is saying, I don't want any part of that. And so you and God get on the wrong side of the line on this one. God simply says, I won't put up with that. By the way, let me show you a verse. This is, this is good to describe the whole context of this. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote this in chapter 2, verse number 13. Look at this. Chapter 2 of Ephesians and verse number 13. The Gentiles is that to whom he's speaking in chapter 2 of Ephesians and verse number 13. And uh, this whole section is about, I guess, unifying the believers. And obviously you have Jews and Gentiles. And the part of that is to connect these Jews with these, these saved Jews with these saved Gentiles. Well, in the context of chapter 2, these Gentiles obviously had no relationship to God Almighty, no connection to Him, so to speak, because they were pagan. And the ideal they had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse number 13, he says, But now in Christ, they, you know, at, at that time is the verse ahead of it, um, Time past, verse 11 says, You were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcised or uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision of the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens. Then verse 13, But now, but now you Gentiles are in Christ, ye who sometimes were, and notice all the words of separation here, ye were afar off. 
And now you've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall or petition between us. There was a wall up between us, and God and you had no relationship whatsoever. And Christ, through his death on the cross, has removed that wall. So there's a relationship. Verse 15, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, the hostility, the hatred, the bitterness that these people had for God Almighty. He says, having abolished it in his flesh, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Verse 16, he says, And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having what? Slain the enmity that was there, thereby. This hostility, this rebel attitude, this hatred that you had for God, that has been slain. Verse 17, And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and lo to them that were nigh. And through him... We both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. It's interesting. All this verse of Scripture talks about the things that it shows a, a sense of separation from God. And all these things or references are talking about people who are lost. The problem with that is that when we come back to our text here in verse number 7 of Romans chapter 8, the carnal mind is enmity. And the fact of the matter, any Christian who gets into this kind of mindset, though he's talking about lost people here, and he's describing uh, the nature of our sin nature without Christ, the fact of the matter is some Christians sort of linger back over into that. And he's uh, obviously in this context is describing the nature of the old nature. But he's saying, watch out. Some of you get mighty close to going back. Some of you get so involved in the things of this world, and the things of this world are catered to your flesh. So beware, be warned, and something else to be noted. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the living color illustration of really how much man hates God. And all through the New Testament, the gospel, do you see it over and again? The illustration about the king sent his son. They hated the king so much, but they killed the son. And that's exactly what this world has done to the Lord Jesus Christ. Killing Jesus Christ was just an expression of what's really in the heart of man toward God Almighty. They hate him, and they are at enmity with him. We do not like to think of it this way, but some people you work with, some people you might call friends, those folks do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, and in point of fact, because of the position they are in, they and God are at odds, and they are enmity to God. They are rebels against God. They are hostile to God. And I say to you, it's important for you and I to deliver a message that delivers them from the bondage in which they are written. By not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that God the Father has sent to save people from their sins and to change us, we, they, those without Christ, reflect the opposition of our very souls against the eternal God of heaven. Someone wrote, we, they, reject his authority to rule over us. We reject and sidestep his will, his design for our lives, which were to help us find our fulfillment in life, but at the same time to help those other people out there come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first reason. Not only the carnal-minded person is enmity against God, but notice the second part. In verse number 7, it also says, He, she, their minds are not subject to the law of God, and neither indeed can be. I read this week something a writer wrote, and it's good. He says, The holiness of the law of God and the unholiness of the carnal, fleshly mind are as irreconcilable 
as light and darkness. Where one is present, the other is not, and by its very nature cannot be. He's absolutely right. You see, where a person has this carnal nature, this sinful nature as we've described here, this mind that is constantly fascinated, orientated toward the flesh, the simple truth is that the nature of God is not present. The holiness of God is of no desire. Living for the Lord is not on the table. It's not a priority. It's not of interest. And the reason is because they're spiritually dead. They have no interest in these things because the carnal mind is death. And that's already stated in verse number 6. See, it's an interesting thing. The carnal mind, the fleshly-oriented person wants his or her own way, not God's way. He or her or she wants to be their own master and doesn't need Lord as ours. The nature of the old nature, it cannot be subject or submissive to the laws of God. The power to do so is simply not present. The flesh, the old nature, is dead toward God and the things of the Spirit. I read this week in my devotional time this verse this verse it's a it's a text actually it's in matthew chapter 22 in matthew 22 verse number 36 matthew 22 36 matthew writes <clears throat> matthew 22 verse 36 master which is the great commandment in the law jesus said unto him thou shalt love the lord thy god with all thy heart with all thy soul and with all thy mind this is the first and great Commandment, Verse 39, the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets are hanging all the law and the prophets. What basically the verse of the passage is saying, because he's speaking to a group of Jews, is that the law requires man should love God supremely, and secondly, that that man should love his neighbor as himself. That's what the law required, but man couldn't keep that law. You see, the fleshly-minded person loves the world, all of its fleshly pleasures, over God. And secondly, that same person, fleshly-oriented person, loves self before it loves anybody else, its neighbor included. So it's Im absolutely impossible for that kind of person to love God. Won't, it won't happen. By the way, there's a principle. The first principle of obedience in the Scripture, you know it well. It's John 14, verse number 15. And that verse of Scripture says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, if you don't love God, the ideal is that you are at hostile spirit toward Him. You're at enmity with Him. And so if you're at enmity with God, you don't have the ability then to do what you need to do because you don't have the Spirit of the Lord. And that spirit is what provides that power and ability of self-help that makes it possible for you to do what you need to do in relationship to him. Where enmity is present, obedience will never be. Because love of God is the basis of obedience in its totality. Paul tells us back over here in chapter 8 again then, not only that the carnal mind is enmity or hostility against God, and not only that the kind of minded person, that person, is uh, not subject or submissive to the law of God, and in fact cannot be, but he also adds this third thing, and look at it in verse number 8. He says, as final conclusion, so then, they that are in the flesh or carnal minded cannot please God. That's a sort of emphatic statement. The choir saying this morning, he is pleased with our praise. Let me tell you something. He is pleased with the praise of people who know him. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, then I'll tell you this morning, God delights in your praise. He inhabits the praise of his people, the psalmist says. And he's absolutely true. 
But the fact of the matter is there are people who do not know Christ as Savior who talk about praising God. And, and I say to you, that's uh, just a waste of your breath and good oxygen because there is nothing that that does for God. Nothing you can do in the flesh will please God. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And consequently from that, it needs to be understood that what God ordained was that people uh, would come to know Him and, and people would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and be spirit-minded, and then they could please God. The Bible sets up clearly that mankind was created with the purpose toward pleasing God. That's what God ordained and God the Father ordained that you and I should do. And when you came into this world and created here and you gave your family gave birth to you or what have you, the fact of the matter is God's plan behind all of that was that you would please Him, that you would please God. And I say this to you. Paul wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 1. He says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God... So you would abound more and more toward it. Pleasing God. That's God's plan for you. That's God's plan for every single believer. I ran across the verse this week concerning children. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 12 to 20. It says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Every child in this room who knows Christ as Savior, the expectation of their lives is that they please God by obeying their parents. That pleases God. And by the way, it's not so much obeying mom and dad first. First, it's pleasing God. That's what you were created to do. My parents said this, and I'll do this, and thereby please God. And consequently, there are passages in the Scripture, and Paul wrote one of them, where people do not please God. He wrote it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. He said, Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God. I say to you that there are ways and means throughout the Scripture that are set aside very clearly. There is absolutely nothing an unsaved, unbeliever, unbelieving person can do to please God. The passage in Isaiah states it clearly in Isaiah 64. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. When it comes to you trying to please God in the flesh, it is an absolute impossibility. None of your good works, none of your religious observances, none of your sacrificing, none of your checks put in an offering plate, absolutely none of them. In fact, Proverbs adds this. Proverbs 15, 8 says, The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. And he's right. And he's right because of one simple truth the New Testament bears fruit of. In Hebrews eleven six states emphatically, it is impossible to please God without what? Faith. And these folks don't have faith. They have, in fact, they're dead in trespasses and sin. They don't have any faith in God. They have no love for God. They have no interest in obeying God. And therefore, therefore, their minds are enmity against Him. Secondly, they are unable to submit to His laws. And thirdly, nothing they do will please Him. Absolutely nothing. So all that to say this, you see, these people are out there wandering around and they need a Savior. And they need you and me to tell them that there is nothing you can do that's going to make it. I mean, absolutely not. Your whole attitude is enmity toward God. You have sons and daughters who do not know Christ as Savior. They're a rebel against God. They are hostile toward God. You say, oh, no, no, no. No, they talk about God. They even pray. Now I lay me down to sleep when they go to sleep. You forgive me, but I don't care what they pray. 
If they do not know Christ as Savior, this Bible declares emphatically that those people are rebels against God. They are hostile toward God. And no matter what kind of fact they put on the outside, their hearts hate God. And by the way, you can't change that. I can't change that. Nothing you can do or I can do will change that heart. It takes God's work to do that. We become tools in His hands to sow the seed. That's why that table in the foyer is loaded with tracts, seeds of the gospel. All you and I can do is sow the seed. You cannot make it grow. You can't even make the heart accept it. That is a work of God and a work of grace. The fact of the matter is, however, lost people live their lives to please themselves. The root sin of all sins is, of course, selfishness. My will, not thy will. When people get those turned around, then their Lord is honored and their lives are blessed, saying, Thy will, not my will, just like Jesus did in the garden. But lost people don't do that. They say, My will, not thy will. I remind you of this in closing, and please get a handle on it. Number one, lost folks cannot please God. They are hostile toward Him. Number two, nothing you can do will please God if you're not a believer first. And thirdly, it is God's will that you be saved and start pleasing God immediately. And fourthly, if you do not, in time you will die in your sinful, selfish state and wake up in hell. And I assure you that that will not please you. And yet that's our alternative. And that's the alternative for all the people who do not know Christ to save you. That's what makes the sharing of the gospel such an important thing. Back in 1949, there was a man by the name of John Curry. John Curry is a real person. This really happened in the state of Tennessee, in a place just outside Nashville, Tennessee. In 1949, John Curry committed some crimes and was sent to prison. And being sent to prison, he was sentenced to a life sentence of being there for the rest of his known life. In time, however, some things came about and he behaved himself in the prisons there in Tennessee and he was put on probation and let go. Back in 1950-something when that happened, however, there was a rule in the law that allowed that John Curry could be allowed to go live with a rich farmer near Nashville, Tennessee. And that farmer would do the communicating with the probation department of the state of Tennessee. And this man would work on this farmer's farm for the rest of his sentence. What was interesting about the case is John Curry could not read or write. So John Curry went to this farmer and he began his sentence to live out on that farm and he did. In fact, he served there five years and a few months and what happened there one day came a letter to the farmer and it said that in essence the probation period had concluded and finished and that Mr. John Curry was released from his probation. He was a free man declared by the governor of the state of Tennessee. What was interesting about this story is that farmer never told John Curry. He worked early on for $5 a week. He lived in a drafty trailer. He washed every day from a, a heating eating trough of horses with a water hose. And he ate on the back porch of that man's home being treated like hired help problem was that the farmer died and nobody no one took the letter and shared it with John Curry's family 
John Curry continued to work until 1980 on that farm. I ask you a simple question. What sympathy do you have for that farmer who kept that letter from that man? I mean, doesn't there something rise up inside of you and, and say this farmer, this rich farmer was a greedy, low-down scoundrel to have this letter in hand that said this man was a free man and he never told him? And then when he got sick, he never told a relative so they could tell him and set him free. He just let this man keep working for him, making money for him, and he never one time suggested that he was actually a free man. Isn't there something burning inside of you against that farmer? Let me tell you something. That farmer is like every Christian. Every man, woman, boy, and girl in this country is born a sinner. They're born under the authority, as it were, of the power, the dominion, of Satan who rules and reigns as it were in this universe at least tries and all those people are in bondage to this sin that they have this sin nature of and there are people who meet in churches every day just like this one every Sunday been saved by the grace of God and have the key to let those people or help those people be set free from their bondage and we don't do it you probably rubbed shoulders with people this last week. And best guess is you probably talked about the election. But the question is, did you talk about the most important subject that they all ever have to deal with? Where will you spend eternity? We find it so easy to talk about every subject in the world. But the one subject that can set men, women, boys and girls free. The salvation by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to remind you and suggest to you that the nature of your nature is sinful. Therefore, be on guard. But there's a simple nature about your nature also that will cause you to retract itself from telling other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. My opinion is our failure to do that and our reluctance to do that grows right out of our old sinful nature. I've got salvation. I'm going to heaven when I die. And to the dust for the rest of you. That sinful kind of lifestyle thinking. We have no concern about them. We don't care about those people. Who cares about that next door neighbor? I never did like that guy anyway. You know, he's always parking on my property. He's always doing something. I don't care what happens to that guy. If you're not careful, the sinful nature that we have, as it were, from Adam will grow up inside your heart and will block every opportunity that God has opened for you to share the gospel. Don't let your sinful nature be the cause for other people not hearing the truth that salvation has been made available to every man, woman, boy, and girl on the universe. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the salvation that has come our way. Someone being faithful to share the truth of the gospel that we, by your spirit, were convicted of and then came to simple faith in Christ. We thank you and we praise you. And we would ask again today that you'd forgive us for our failure to share this good news with those who are in bondage still. I pray that you will set within our hearts a great fire and may it burn with great intensity and may it overrule, as it were, the sinful inclination we have to keep the good news to ourselves. Certainly, we don't look upon the world as our brothers and therefore we're our brother's keeper and we got to go win all of them because of that. We're not brothers in that sense. Did we all come as it were from a created God? Sure, we did. But the fact of the matter is each of us individually will stand accountable before the holy God of heaven 
on the basis of what we did with the Lord Jesus Christ. So a proper question is, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you believed on him? And Father, I pray that every person, man, woman, boy, and girl in this building would have considered that truth. What have I done with Christ? And if I'm still hostile toward God, I pray, Father, this morning, if there are people here in that condition who are enmity with thee, I pray you'll smite their hearts and convict them and help them to see that your interest in them is only good and will have great eternal consequences and reward. I pray for every believer here that you'll stir our spirits to go from this place and be conscious of our neighbors across the street, beside our homes, wherever they may be, and to realize these people have been paid for. Their salvation has been paid for by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But somebody needs to deliver the letter that they're free. And unlike that farmer, we ought not die having never told them that the letter said, you're free. Christ died for you. He shed his blood that your sins could be paid for and atoned for. All you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I pray this morning help us to see the simplicity of the message, the complexity of the problem, because of our own sinful nature. And bring forth fruit that you've ordained for this hour. Those who ought to come for salvation, those who ought to come for baptism, those who ought to come for church membership, and some who ought to come just to pray. Those to whom you've spoken about personal matters as believers. Whatever the case is, may we now obey you and your word as it's been given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? If you need a hymn book, turn to 282. Just as I am, if God has spoken to your heart first and foremost about your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, we urge you to come. Allow someone to take a Bible and show you how from the scriptures you can be absolutely sure that you're going to heaven when you die. And the truth can set you free. It has set many in this building free already, and it can set you free if you're here without Christ. If you're a believer, may God speak to your heart about sharing the good news of the gospel more faithfully and not allowing your sinful nature to be the barrier of doing so. Whatever the case is, may God help us to obey as we sing. 282 verse 1, let's sing and you obey the Lord together. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your attention this morning. Thank you for your attendance also. Thank you for being with us. Do please come back this evening, 6 o'clock for the service. Kelly Neal will be with us from Child Evangelism Fellowship. I hope you'll come be in the service. And I do hope that you'll sign up for the Thanksgiving Fellowship, 6.30 next Saturday evening. And if you know folks who will be coming with you, please make a note of that. And bring enough food for them too if you would. Let's bow in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, again, we're grateful for the privilege we've had to be in Sunday school and now in the worship service today. And we thank you even in advance for the opportunity we'll have to come to the evening service you're permitting. And we ask you now to bless the truths we have heard. And may they not fade away as does the sounds of the songs and the music and even the words that have been spoken. May rather the truths we've heard, may they be solidified in our hearts. May we embrace them and may, Father, we set out to obey them. And may we be different from having been here this morning. 
And I pray we'll learn about this old nature to which we're all attached and help us to be keenly aware that it stands in the way of so much of that which is good and that which we ought to do. And I pray you'll help us today to be overcomers in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of His Spirit. Thank you for this hour. Bless now as we go. Give safety and protection. And do bless as we return for the evening service this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Thank you.